Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 51 of the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. This week, we're going to be starting our whole new topic of pulmonology and beginning with obstructive lung diseases. My name is Brian Wallace. I'm the host and creator here at physicianassistantexamreview.com, where you can find all the notes and information, um, the old web the blah, 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 the old podcasts, everything, uh, the notes on all these shows, everything that you're going to want to find is located over on the website, www.physicianassistantexamreview.com. I'm so excited to be here today. Uh, in particular, we're starting pulmonology, a whole new topic in season two. So we're really getting through the material. I'm getting it much more cleaned up than it was in, in the first season. Um, you know, a little bit of time invested in this has gotten improved the quality I think over time so I've been taking down a lot of the old stuff because it's awful and trying to just clean it up and make everything a lot easier for you guys now you understand clearly and I want to make sure I always always emphasize this this show is not designed for teaching you how to practice medicine that's really not the goal that I have in producing this show what the goal I have in producing this show is to make you a get you to pass your tests right get you to improve your scores, pass your pan re, pass your pants, get you to be a better test taker, a better learner, a better studier, a better rememberer, all those things. Those are my goals, not to have you be <clears throat> the best clinician, not to have you be the best uh, practitioner. All those things will come with a lot of the things I talk about and a lot of the things we cover here, but that is not the goal of this program. So if you're looking for that kind of stuff, uh, this <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to be disappointed. My goals are to get you to pass your exam and picking out the things that are most important for your exam, not necessarily for your everyday practice, that sort of stuff. And that's what we cover here. And I talk about that in particular because I had a few people email me this past week uh, in frustration that they've they've not been able to pass their exam or they're extremely fearful after taking a couple practice exams about what they're going to do. And I want to take some time at the end of the show today and talk about that. But before we do that, let's cover, let's get started with pulmonology and start with our obstructive lung diseases. And we'll start with our priming questions, the things to get you started, the things to get you going a little bit to get that brain working. I want you to stop and think for a minute about each of these. Even if you don't remember them, take just a second, try to process them. Anything you can do to drudge up a little information in that brain of yours will help to prime it to get you ready to remember what's in the show today and help you to pick out the information that's coming. So define... Ooh, Hold on one second. We have the... Got to hit the buttons. Define FEV1 and what does it stand for? Define FEV1 and what does it stand for? What puts a patient in the mild persistent asthma category? What puts a patient in the mild persistent asthma category? And is FEV1 up or down in asthma? Is FEV1 up or down? Is FEV1 up or down in asthma? And what about COPD? All right, so that's going to be the bulk of what we covered today. Um, we're going to start with obstructive lung diseases. I just think it's a nice place to get a jumping off point. Surprisingly, as I'm looking at it, there's not a ton of volume in pulmonology. The there actually seems felt like there was more topics in dermatology than there are in pulmonology, but pulmonology makes up 10% of your exam. 
So we're going to give it the, you know, as much as we possibly can here. So we're going to begin with spirometry, which is um, these, it's a way of testing pulmonary function, okay? So it measures volume and speed of exhalation and inspiration. And I didn't understand spirometry. It took me a long time and, you know, like all these tests and all these things. It, I couldn't picture it. Everyone's like, oh yeah, you just, what's the, what's the, uh, FEV1, we measured it with the spirometer, we did this. I, I didn't get any of that until I actually saw it, until I observed it. You know, um, it takes, maybe I'm a little slower learner than some of you out there, but it takes me a little bit. I have to see it, I have to grasp it before it sticks. And this was one that just, I was just pure memorization. I had no clue what this test looked like. You know, it's like send them for a CAT scan, but if you don't know what a CAT, I like to see what the CAT scan machine looks like. I like to see what the patient goes through to get the thing done. That really helps me to retain it. And it was the same here. Uh, I had, I was very fortunate that my professors or one of my professors ran a small company that did health screening on firefighters and policemen in, while I was in PA school, I think it was policemen also, definitely firefighters. And we would go in and he would, he was the PA and he would do the physicals. And then as students, we would do things like, uh, take blood pressures, do, um, the pulmonary function testing do um, it's, there's a thing you could do to t test if their masks fit appropriately. Um, a couple of different things that we were, we were able to do as students that, that made the whole process a lot quicker and faster. And one of the things was we would do these pulmonary function tests and that gave me a really good idea of how they work and what happens. And if you have never seen it before, just pull it up on Google and take a look at it. I think it'll really help a quick video, short video. Um, it really is just a machine that you breathe in and out through and it measures airflow. Uh, and you can get a lot of information from that. It's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. But again, for me, until I wrap my head around it, it's, it's tough to recall. So anyway, <clears throat> with the uh, spirometry, with the pulmonary function testing, we can measure a couple things. And these will help us, especially with, with diagnosing obstructive lung diseases. So let's start with total lung capacity, TLC, the volume of the lungs at maximal inflation. So it's a big inhale and then a full breath out. And it measures how much... Uh, total volume is in the lungs. Tidal volume is the volume of air moved into and out of the lungs during normal resting respirations. So just as you stand and you breathe in and out, that's your tidal volume. A vital capacity, this is the volume of air exhaled slowly after the deepest possible inspiration. Forced vital capacity is the volume of air forcefully exhaled after the deepest possible inspiration. And then the number that's going to be important for us today, forced expiratory volume in one second is FEV1. So this is the volume of air which can be exhaled after one second of forced expiration. So this is a deep breath in and then blowing out as hard as you can for one second. And then peak expiratory flow rate is the highest air flow rate during forced expiration. So during that FEV1, what's the, the air flow rate? And those are all things we can measure um, with pulmonary function testing and get a better idea of how well the lungs are, are working, how healthy they are, how much room there is in there, if they're obstructed or not, right? So when we say obstructive lung disease, an obstruction is just something in the way, right? So if you have an obstruction, you the, the pathways are blocked. It's harder for air to flow. So our obstructive lung diseases, today we're going to talk about asthma um, and then COPD as a starting point. We can also include... Uh, bronchiectasis and cystic fibrosis sort of into that category. We'll talk about that again in the next show. But for today, I just want to start with these two and get us off the ground. So let's start with asthma. Um, 
asthma is pretty straightforward. Most of us can wrap our heads around it. We knew someone with asthma. We had asthma as a kid. It's one of those diseases that people are relatively familiar with right out of the gate. It's not so obscure like something like lupus. If you don't know someone with lupus, it's tough to sort of get your head around it. But if you, most of us know someone with asthma, <clears throat> I would think at this, at this stage. So anyway, bronchospasms leading to airflow obstruction. So what happens is the the, the airways go into spasm. They get... Um, they become inflamed and they clench down. And so the airflow is obstructed as it moves in and out. With asthma, it's reversible, relapsing and remitting, right? So you get it with things like exercise or certain allergens will kick it off or viruses or stress and emotions. Certain things will kick it off, but it will, it's not constant. It goes away. It'll go away with medications. You can get that inflammation, that spasming to calm down where that's not the case with other diseases, but with asthma, it is possible to reverse it. It comes and it goes. Symptoms are typically worse at night. It tends to be associated with atopic dermatitis and allergic rhinitis. My oldest had a little, he has some atopic dermatitis and he had a little asthma as a kid. He's 10 now and he's grown out of the asthma almost completely he still has a little bit of the atomic dermatitis, but they definitely, you, you, it helps me to think about them going hand in hand, just as the picture of that kid with both of those things. Corticosteroids are the most effective treatment for chronic control of this disease. We'll talk about treatments more as we go, obviously. Clinical presentation. Difficulty breathing is number one. I think that makes sense. Uh, wheezing, chest tightness, and a cough, persistent coughing. Lab studies and physical exam findings. So this is something that, that, uh, you can look for, which is that the use of accessory muscles for breathing. So those neck muscles and the, the, the chest, sort of that upper chest breathing, uh, they get tachypnea, uh, tachycardia, and then that wheeze is really the, the hallmark sign there, that wheezing that goes along with asthma. You can also get a paradoxical pulse, which uh, sort of is a key term here. Um, I, I don't work in private practice. I'm sorry, in family practice. So it's not something that I've ever can say that I've looked for, but it's definitely something for your test, a paradoxical pulse. This is a pulse that's weaker during inhalation and stronger during exhalation. Not real hard to remember. Um, so maybe worth just jotting down. So as far as our labs and studies go, you we're going to do an FEV1. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to do spirometry, right? We're going to, which we talked about earlier. And the first one that's going to matter for us is an FEV1. It's going to be decreased, right? So what was FEV1? It was forced expiratory volume in the first second. So if my lungs have these narrowed passages and I breathe out as hard as I can for one second, I'm not going to be able to get as much air out as someone who doesn't have those narrowed passages, right? That makes sense. If those pathways are obstructed, then less air will be able to get out. So my FEV1 is decreased. The other interesting thing with asthma is if you give bronchodilators, it improves, right? See so those passages open up, and now that FEV1 returns to something like normal. Our peak expiratory flow rate is decreased. Again, makes sense. I can't blow out as fast. And it improves with use of bronchodilators. The same as FEV1. Forced vital capacity is normal in these people, and a histamine or metacholine challenge if spirometry is not effective. Um, so what that means is you can do, you if you have someone who you think has asthma, right, you 
but they come in and they're perfectly normal. They're perfectly fine. Like say my, my youngest son, for example, he has some exercise induced asthma. When he plays soccer, we have to, we, we have to give him a little bit of <laughs> a little medication beforehand and he does much, much better. But when he goes in the office and they were, if they were to test him with spirometry, he would come across as normal. There would be no issues whatsoever. But what you can do is you can give him a little bit of a challenge. You can give him a uh, metacholine or a histamine, and that will sort of set off that uh, that asthma. So you can test their their spirometry under that challenge. So that's what that's talking about. Lastly, you can do a chest X-ray. It's typically normal, but you could get some hyperinflation uh, of the lungs if it is possible. With asthma, one of the issues with being a student and learning about it is this, the silly classifications and knowing what they are and how they fall in. And all they really are is it's designed to help you treat it, right? It's designed to help you know what medications to give. It's not designed to make your life as a student miserable. That's not the goal. The goal is to be able to treat asthma appropriately. So the classifications are intermittent, mild persistent, moderate persistent, and severe persistent, right? So we have every once in a while, most of the time, but not too bad, most of the time, but kind of bad, and all the time and really bad. Those are our classifications. So you get intermittent, which is two or less episodes per week, two or less nighttime episodes per month. It's those nighttime episodes that really kick it over the edge too. So two or less episodes per week, two or less nighttime episodes per month. Like I said, my little guy has some exercise-induced asthma. He is not intermittent. He doesn't have episodes every week. He clearly has episodes when he runs, when he does things outside, when he's active. And for that, he just gets a little albuterol before exercise, and he's completely good to go. Mild persistent is a step up from intermittent, right? So if that was two or less episodes per week and two or less episodes per month at night, mild persistent is more than two episodes per week. That seems pretty straightforward. Three to four episodes per month. So about once a week, uh, he has a nighttime episode, or no, I'm sorry, once a week, a patient would have to have a nighttime episode and then more than two episodes per week for mild persistent. For moderate persistent, there would be daily, daily episodes of asthma attacks and then one nighttime episode per week. So that's just a little bit more than mild persistent as far as the nighttime episodes go. And then severe persistent, here the symptoms are constant, right? It's all, it's all the time. It's more than daily. And nighttime episodes are almost every single night. So severe persistence. So one of the things I try to point out, and I went out of my, or, and I'm going out of my way in this month's edition, the August edition of the August, that'll be August 2019 edition of the Physician Assistant Exam Scholars newsletter, is to point out to you how I, how I address this sort of stuff, how I look at these more difficult topics for people to remember, what I study so that I can pass my test, what I look for, how I do it. So I'm going to give you a quick insight here. Uh, classifications of asthma. So what I would do, I have these four inter- these four categories for asthma that I have trouble remembering. Either end is easy to remember of a list, right? So severe persistent is super easy to remember. Symptoms are all the time, and it's a nighttime, epi- nighttime episode almost every single night. That's very easy to retain. The beginning of the list is intermittent, so two or less episodes a week. So... Not that often, maybe once or twice a week and once or twice a month, right? At night. Pretty simple. That's two out of four. That's 50% now I have memorized. The other two are almost like splitting hairs because it's three to four nighttime episodes a month for mild and it's one nighttime episode per week for persistent. Well, 
three to four is almost once a week. So that's kind of the same. The difference is one has daily episodes during the, during the day and the other has more than two per week. So how I would approach this is to remember that severe is all the time and every night. Intermittent is not that often and maybe once or twice a month at night. And the difference between mild and, and moderate persistent is daily versus every couple of days. And that's how I would retain those. I wouldn't, you know, most people will spend hours and hours and hours trying to memorize each one of those. Don't do it that way. Look for the things you can remember best first and then move on. And like I said, that's really, I, I in this month's uh, edition of the, the newsletter, I'm covering this idea with cardiology and going through some of the more important aspects of cardiology and doing just that and showing you exactly how I would do that, um, which incidentally is, uh, this is going out on the, what's it, on the 30th and the last day to subscribe for that issue is the 31st. So if you jump on it, you'll still be able to get in and get that one, but only if you do it today or tomorrow at the latest. Treatment for asthma. Uh, preventive care is number one. I remove allergens or triggers. Pet dander, especially cats, keep pets out of the bedroom. So if you have cats sleeping on your bed and you have asthma, that's a disaster. Cats, um, animals got to stay downstairs away from bedrooms if at all possible. If you have um, asthma, it's just completely insane to have them in your room, in your bed. It's, it makes the nighttime episodes a million times worse. So you're also going to be looking for dust mites, mold, and cigarette smoke, those sort of things, anything that's going to trigger that asthma. You're going to want preventative care. If you can keep it from happening, obviously that's so much better. For chronic treatment, uh, mild intermittent is going to be short-acting beta-2 agonist, so a little albuterol. Mild persistent, you're going to get short-acting beta-2 agonist and a daily use of low-dose inhaled steroid. So what I want you to see is that for a moderate persistent, they get a medium dose of an inhaled steroid, and for severe persistent, they get a high dose of inhaled steroid and maybe a systemic steroid. So that's going to be our major differences. For an acute exacerbation, meaning someone is um, having trouble breathing, you're going to give them a short acting beta-2 agonist, so that's your albuterol, and then consider upping the steroid uh, and either adding an inhaled steroid or adding an oral steroid if necessary. They may also need oxygen, and you could use an anticholinergic like epitropium bromide if, uh, if it's bad enough. There are a couple of the medications you can use, which are mast cell stabilizers or leukotriene antagonists. Um, but really the mainstay for treatment is going to be those beta-2 agonists and then the long, um, short-acting and long-acting beta-2 agonists and the, and the steroids, both inhaled and systemic. All right, so COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, which is chronic bronchitis plus emphysema. Those two things make up chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The number one cause of COPD is smoking, and chronic bronchitis is an inflammation of the bronchi with a productive cough for at least three consecutive months per year in two consecutive years. These are the blue bloaters, right? Your chronic bronchitis. Emphysema is the destruction of the alveoli. They lose their shape and also collapse, trapping the air inside. These are your pink puppers. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. But chronic, chronic bronchitis is a productive cough for at least three consecutive months per year in two consecutive years. 
Emphysema is the destruction of the alveoli, and we'll get into a little bit as we go. Clinical presentation. This is a chronic cough in bronchitis. It's productive. In emphysema, it's dry. In both cases, we get shortness of breath, wheezing, fever, chest pain. Your pink pu puffers, they're puffers because they have hyperventilation. They're just <laughs> and pink is they are less hypoxic than the, than the blue bloaters. They're also more accessory muscle use, which make them look more pink. Your blue bloaters are blue because they're more hypoxic, and they're they look bloated because there's more air trapping, uh, larger volume of air, and that's where you get that barrel-chested shape from in your uh, chronic bronchitis people. So they have diminished breath sounds and chronic bronchitis. You may hear ronchi. In emphysema, you definitely get that diminished breath sound because those alveoli have been uh, destroyed. You get wheezing. You can do a sputum grand strain and culture just to make sure there's nothing else going on. Um, for pulmonary function tests, FEV1 is decreased. FEV1 over FEVC, um, FVC is reduced. Lung volumes go up due to air trapping, not down. Chest x-ray could show hyperinflation because, again, you get that air trapping going on. You get a flattened diaphragm, again, from the air pushing down on that diaphragm. And you may want to get a CAT scan to show all that. The major treatment here is stop smoking. And you, you may need antibiotics due to repeated infections. Secondary to all this uh, nasty junk getting stuck in there. Short-acting beta-2 agonist at albuterol will help open up those passageways. But again, you've destroyed some of the passageways. Anticholinergics like epitropium, inhaled steroids will help. Oral steroids may help. And then oxygen is the only medication that changes the course of severe COPD. So these people need to be on oxygen. That's what's going to help them. Nothing else shows long-term benefits. It helps them feel better, but the long-term benefits come from COPD. I'm sorry, come from oxygen. Come from having oxygen. All right, so that's as far as I want to go today with asthma and COPD. I don't want to get too much further along in pulmonology. I think that's a lot to swallow, a lot to take in. So let's just hold up there for a little bit. The study tip for today, I want to pause for a minute and talk about something that um, sort of happened this this week. And I want you to to take advantage of some things. And I'm sort of, I get it, I'm a little frustrated and I get it. Uh, so let me just jump in. I got several emails this week, and I usually get these um, fairly often, but I got a couple this week. Um, let me just read through them. I, I tried to remove as much information that would pinpoint the individuals as possible and just sort of give you the feel of it. Um, thanks for the great podcast. I took the pants and I missed the cutoff by two questions. I was devastated. I went to a review course and I studied. And then again, I, I wound up with the same score. I don't understand. I've been offered a job in every rotation I've been on. Uh, I know the material. I just have a mental barrier with tests. My patient contacts and hand-on skills are great and much better than my classmates from my, all my experience, uh, but all of my classmates are much better test takers than I am. Um, someone else wrote in and said, uh, you know, I've been a PA for a while, and I failed my, my, my panry twice now. I have no problem with practice exams. When it comes time to actually take the test, I freak out and eventually miss the mark by only a few points. I need help. Um, the next one says, help, I have to pass my panry and I failed the practice exam. I work crazy hours, have two young kids, and I don't know how to get this done. And 
my frustration comes in because now, now I, I get these people are, are struggling and I, and I absolutely, I'm, I get that. I absolutely hundred percent get that. It's difficult. It's not easy. Like I said, at the beginning of this, my goal is to get you to pass your test, right? So many people tie so much into this about themselves and their practice and their ability to be a PA that I think it screws them up. I think they're so concerned that this is a referendum on their personality and their ability to be a physician assistant. And I think that's a total mistake. I think this is a referendum on your ability to take tests. And that's why I present it the way I do. So um, that being said, I went through and I looked up these individuals. And again, I, this this is not about these individuals. This is about the general population uh, because I get these emails pretty routinely. And I went and I looked up these three individuals and one of them just signed up for my email list the day that they sent this in, which is great. I'm so happy that they did. None of them, none of these individuals have um, gone ahead and moved into any of the other material that I've offered. Uh, what I mean by that is no, none of them have signed up for the newsletter. None of them have signed up for the maximize your time and uh, efficiency course. None of them have signed up for the no more anxiety course. Uh, all of those things are ways that I present the exact information that they're asking for in clear, concise ways. I do the emails. I do the podcast. All of that stuff is completely 100% out there. It's also, you can follow it all on the website. All the old emails are on the website, or at least a lot of them are, where a lot of this information is contained. But if you want it clear and concise and just broken down, I have these those other uh, paid products that do that for you. And I know this sounds a little bit self-serving, but at this point, I have, there are over 10,000 people, 10,000 people downloading this podcast every time, right? A little bit more than that. And the community is growing and growing. I don't have the ability to do one-on-one coaching. I don't have the ability to do one-on-one or to answer every one of these every one of these emails with a detailed response. It just, it doesn't work. So what I do instead is I write the newsletter. What I do instead is I put a course together on how to handle this. And I know sometimes money is an issue and it's a little tight, but on the other hand, for the past year, I've offered the newsletter and the no more anxiety course on how to take tests and not be nervous and not have this happen to you. And that has been a $25 fee. Uh, I don't think that's asking a whole lot. I think that's asking for a little commitment up front uh, to get that done. So I get that it's not always easy, but in my mind, uh, the steps to take are available to you. I've put together as, as clearly and concisely as I can uh, all that information in those places, and it really, really is there. So as much as I would love to take the time to individually go through it with everybody, I just, I, <laughs> it just isn't feasible. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so what I, what I hope is that you take advantage of the materials that I've made available for you, that you listen to these people's stories and you understand that these are uh, difficult, that it's not easy, uh, that it's very hard to go into that room and take that test. And that's why I do this. That's why I put this material out there is to help get you through that. Uh, So please, please, please just start taking advantage of the stuff that's out there. Read through the, you know, there's tons of information as far as all this goes that I've put out there for, with absolutely no charge between the podcast and all the study tips I give in that and the emails. But if you want to speed it up, if you want to make it quicker, if you want to get a more, uh, just a more streamlined version, that's really where I cut it down and have it in those courses. And if you keep your eyes out, 
and you're on the email list. And, and again, if you're, if you're listening to the podcast and you're not on the email list, I just, I'm not sure uh, how to twist your arm harder to get you on the email list. There's, I give out so much of this kind of information on the email list. As I email, I send a new tip, technique, process, system, something every single day to help you get through your exams, to help improve your rotations, to help you improve in all of these things. Um, so if you haven't signed up there yet, uh, and again, that's 100% free. There's nothing uh, going on there. So you, there's n- absolutely no reason for you to be in a situation where you're saying, uh, you know, I'm not sure how to study. I'm not sure how to prepare. All of that stuff is uh, completely 100% available to you. So head on over to the website, www.physicianassistantexamreview.com and check that out. Please, please, please. Um, that's why I do it. That's why I put it all together is so that you don't run into these exact same problems. So anyway, that's my study tip for today is go let the minimum, please go sign up for the email list. Uh, let me help you through that as best as I can. And that's where you'll get a ton of that information. And if you want to go further, uh, keep your eyes peeled. And there's, there's a lot more we can cover as well together. In particular, uh, like I had said earlier, the newsletter, which goes out tomorrow. So if you're hearing this and interested in learning a little bit deeper how to study, how to prepare, how I think about studying, how I think about covering the material, then hop on quickly because then in that one I cover cardiology, I cover murmurs, I cover some antiarrhythmic medicines, that kind of stuff and how I remember all that stuff and and make it easy to recall. So anyway, that will be uh, very timely. Uh, you can only get that through tomorrow because I don't make the old newsletters available for, for sale. So if you don't, if you listen to this in the future, sorry, you already missed that one, but maybe I'll have something new out for you on that topic. Anyway, so let's wrap it up um, on that note and we will move on and answer our priming questions. Define FEV1 and what does it stand for? Define FEV1 and what does it stand for? It's forced expiratory biome. How much air can you forcefully exhale in one second? What puts a patient into the mild persistent asthma category? What puts a patient into the mild persistent asthma category more than two episodes per week and three to four episodes at night per month is fev1 up or down in asthma is fev1 up or down in asthma so in obstructive diseases it will be decreased for both all right so that'll take us out for our opening show on pulmonology i think that this is a great place to start and a great place to focus a lot of attention because again, it's 10% value of your test. So you have a lot of room to get these right. A lot of places you want to pick these up. I know that I focus more on the diagnoses than I do on the treatments because I believe strongly that for passing your test, the diagnosis is far more important. If you, it's rare that they will give you the, give you the diagnosis and just ask for the treatment. They will, but a lot of times I find that they're looking for the diagnosis or they're looking for both the diagnosis and the treatment. So although I get the little bit of frustration that you probably have with how quickly I sort of zip through the treatments, there's, there is some reasons for that. There are some, there is some thought behind that. When I study, I do not spend as much time on the treatments. Now I understand again, for, like I said, in the beginning, this is designed to pass your test. This is not designed to get you to be the best practitioner ever. So in your practice, it's much more important to understand the treatments for your test it's imperative that you understand the diagnosis and it's really helpful that you understand the, the treatments, but it's not, the weight is not the same in my opinion. So anyway, let's let that take us out and I will talk to you again in just a couple weeks. Take care and enjoy the rest of your summer. <laughs>